and that you think of uh, Christianity? What is it that you think of the, uh, the gospel of salvation? Could it be said of you today that though perhaps you're, you're not born again in Christ Jesus, uh, that you are at least interested in Christianity? Does that begin to sum up where you are? Perhaps it could be said of you that you are not, okay, quite there yet, but you're certainly interested in Jesus, interested in coming to faith, a saving faith in the Lord Christ. Well, just now what we're going to do for a few moments is consider the section of scripture that deals with a man who absolutely fits that bill. So this is a man here who is interested in Jesus. This is a man who is intrigued, he's curious, he finds what Jesus says appealing, but what we learn at the very end of this section is quite interesting, isn't it? Is a man who is not quite there yet. It's a man who has not quite entered the kingdom of God. So, in light of that, there is much, let me tell you this, there's much in this portion of scripture for us as Christians. There's a lot here for those who are not Christians. But if you're that person who is on the cusp of salvation, I wonder if you see what this is that we're dealing with this morning. Do you see what you have in your hands? You've got a section of scripture that has been written by Almighty God. And perhaps it's been written for you today. So, what is this? What is this situation that we're dealing with in Mark chapter 12 here at this precise moment? If you were here last week, you remember that we talked about a conveyor belt. Do you remember that? That uh, at this point in this chapter, you've got religious group after religious group after religious group. They're kind of coming and they come at Jesus and then they go away again. Well, I wonder, did you notice that the dynamic is a little bit different in this section? Isn't it? The dynamic's a little bit different. Because yes, we're still in the same place. So Jesus is still in the temple courts and he's still teaching uh, this big, large gathering. But you notice it's not a group this time that comes to Jesus. Who is it? One man. One person. One individual comes up and he wants to speak uh, to the Christ. So, the dynamic is different. The other thing that you and I need to pay attention to here is the fact that the tone... It's very, very different as well, isn't it? Now, if you were here last week, do you remember what the Sadducees were trying to do in the Pharisees? Do you remember what their plan was? They were coming up to Jesus to oppose him. Wasn't that it? They, they wanted to try and throw his ministry off course. They, they, they wanted to, to trick him, to trap him. And, and do you see, it's just entirely different to that here. Like, this man is coming up to Jesus. Why? Because he likes what he hears. Like he's sort of looked on from afar as Jesus has interacted with those Sadducees. And he's thought to himself, this man seems very wise. This seems right. I like what this man is saying. You see, and so he comes up to Jesus to converse with our Lord. Isn't it so much more positive than some of the previous sections we've looked at, isn't it? So you have a man and he's interested He comes up, my question is, well, what does he ask Jesus? Would you look at it with me? Look at verse 28. What does he ask our Lord? You know, maybe, maybe he interrupts Jesus. You know, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and maybe it's, you know, excuse me, Rabbi, teacher, excuse me, which would you say 
is the most important commandment of all. Out of all of these commandments that we have, Rabbi, which would you say is the most important? Uh, I think it's important that we establish this is not an unusual question for a man like this uh, to ask. Did you notice what his job was? This man is a, a scribe. Okay, so it's a man whose actual role in life was to be an expert in the law of God. There's that. But you've also got to take into account, see if you can get your head around this, that there were over 600 uh, different laws and commands as far as the scribes were concerned. Over 600 of these laws and commands. So what these scribes used to do a lot was to speak to rabbis about them. They would speak to the rabbis and, and ask them about the sort of uh, the meaning of the different laws. Now, do you see what they're trying to do? They are trying to, and this is so important, friends. They're trying to get to a summary statement of the law. That's what they wanted. They wanted a sort of guiding principle to help people to obey the law, to help people live pleasing God, to get a summary statement of all these 600 different commands. That's what this guy's after here. So what do we want to know? (laughs) Well, we want to know how does Jesus answer this question? So this morning in here, what we're going to do is we're going to notice three things about this section of Scripture, okay? The first is this. We learn here... God desires our love for him. He desires our love for him. And you see where we get that here, don't you? You see it in the beginning of Jesus' answer. What does he say? What does Jesus say at the scribe? What's the greatest command? Jesus looks at him and says, well, love God. But I want us just to notice a couple of elements about this love. First thing is that it's covenantal. It's covenantal love. What do I mean by that? Well, when I was um, growing up in Scotland, when I was in school in Scotland, every day without fail, we would begin the school day in the same way. I was thinking about this this week, and it kind of shows how the education system has moved in not all that long a time. <laughs> um, But we would begin the same way. Every day, the whole school would file into an assembly hall, a room bigger than this, big assembly hall. And what we would do to begin each day is recite the Lord's Prayer. It's quite a thought, really, isn't it? You would have the teaching staff, all of them, the office staff, uh, the teachers, the assistants, and everyone in the school, all by memory reciting the Lord's Prayer every morning to begin uh, school. Now, uh, see that idea? That would have been very familiar to the ancient people of Israel here. Like, obviously not reciting the Lord's Prayer. But what these Jews would do every morning is that they would get up and they would recite what is called the Shema, which is what we read earlier on in Deuteronomy 6, isn't it? That sort of biblical expression of the oneness, the uniqueness of God. Now, what I find really interesting here is that Jesus quotes that. Do you see that? Have you thought about that? You know, the, the scribe asks him, what, what's the greatest command? He doesn't actually say, love God. Does he? How does he respond? He, he says to the scribe, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. Do you see it? He prefaces this with the Shema. 
And I wonder this morning, do you see what it is that Jesus is doing there? Now, do you see what Jesus is giving you this morning if you're a Christian? He's giving you the motivation, reminding you of the motivation you need to love God. Because I ask you, why do you love God as a Christian? Do you love him because he is your creator? Do you love him because he is a sustainer God? Yes, but above that, more than that, why do we love God? We love him because he is our God. Isn't that right? We love him because he is our covenant God. The God who is committed to us. The God who, who first loved us. The God who has entered into a covenant relationship with his people. Isn't that why we love him? We love him not because he's God. We love him because he is the Lord, our God. This love the law demands is a covenantal love. But it's also more than that. It is also a comprehensive love. So with this, would you allow me to speak to the boys and girls uh, just for a moment? So kids, you can listen to me just for a second. Well, not just for a second. Listen to me <laughs> throughout the sermon, but especially just now, boys and girls. Now, you've heard me say before in sermons to the congregation that repetition is important. If you heard me say that before, just pretend you have if you can't remember. Like I, I've said that if you're reading a section of the Bible... That if you see a word or a phrase that's used often, you're supposed to pay really quite close attention to that word or phrase. So I want to play a little game with you very, very quickly. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to read verse 30. Maybe you can even look at it in your mum or your dad's Bible. And at the end, you've got to tell me what the word is that is repeated. I think it's even repeated four times. So you're, you're not going to miss it. You ready for this? I'll read it. So Jesus looks at the scribe. What's the greatest command? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I think I've made it easy for you. What is the repeated word? Oh, yes, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. But friends, do you see what it is that we are being taught there? Now, it's a serious point. The, the love that God requires of humanity, the love the law requires, is what sort of a love? It is all-encompassing. Do you see, this is a love that is supposed to cover every facet of your being. It's to cover your emotions and your intellect and your activity, all of it. In fact, just think of it like this. What is it that a husband wants from his wife? Or to avoid getting into trouble. What is it that a wife wants from her husband? Like, does she want her husband to spend the whole day long not giving her a moment's thought, not thinking of his wife at all, but maybe once a week having a sort of twinge of emotion and maybe asking her about her day? Does she want that? Or does she want a different kind of love? Like, does she want a love that infuses everything about the way her husband lives? You know, a love that maybe means he will spontaneously just contact her, just to tell her he loves her. You know, a love that maybe means that he will make plans to see her the minute, the second he's finished work. Which sort of love does she want? What does a spouse want? It's that second love. Do you see the similarity? 
Do you think loving God is coming here once a week looking for an emotional experience? That is not the love that God desires. To love God truly means having a heart that is so utterly transformed by grace. It covers and colors everything about us as his people. You know, the way that we think colored by the love of God and how we interact with other people, how we even use our time, everything colored by this love for our covenant head. So how about this? This week, as his people, let's not marginalize our God. Isn't that what we do? We treat God like that task around the house. We've all got it. You know, that task that we keep putting off never quite gets done. That's how we treat God, isn't it? Friends, let's not marginalize God. Let us pursue our God this week with everything we are. Let's pursue him in his word. Why? So that we might love our God more for who he is and for this ah, this beautiful covenant mercy he has shown his children. God desires our love for him. A second thing that we see in this portion of scripture is that God desires our love for others. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you see where we get this from because Jesus is not finished, is he? He said, love God. Then he quotes um, Leviticus 19. And he says to the scribe, yeah, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's do what we just did in that first point, shall we? Let's look at a couple of elements of that. First is this. You see those two statements, love God and love your neighbor. We must appreciate that those two statements are linked, vitally, intrinsically linked. So what do I mean by that? Well, you you know how it is. Um, you're in Tesco, and you're doing your weekly shop. Maybe it's even Asda. Who knows? You're doing your weekly shop, but the problem is that it's been a bit of a tight month financially. It's been one of those horrific five-week months, maybe. Uh, or a big bill has come in. So what do you do? You're in Tesco's. You're doing your weekly shopping. What do you do? I know what you do. Uh, you go for the two-for-one offers, don't you? You're not buying the expensive orange juice this month. You're not going for Tropicana. You're going for that two-for-one offer on the Tesco's value, orange juice. That's how we're going to play it. Well, that seems to be how some people think Jesus is behaving here. He's been asked for one command, the greatest command, and he's given an answer to that. Some people think... That is really just here, buy one, get one free. That he said, love God, but that at the same time, he's just chucking in this love your neighbor thing. It's this nice little bonus extra. And friends, I want you to see it's not like that. I was going to say that those two, those two statements, love God and love your neighbor are linked intrinsically. Do you know what? It's even more than that. This statement, To love your neighbor as yourself 
it flows from, it comes out of, it stems from that existing love of God. Now, I wonder if you see what I mean by that if you're a Christian. In fact, I'll turn it to you. I'll I'll give it to you. Let me ask you, if you are a child of God this morning, what is it that you desire more than anything on this earth? Now that God has shown you such grace and awakened you to Christ Jesus, what do you want? You know, if you strip everything away, what's the one thing you want? Surely it's this, to live in a way that honors God. Don't you? You want that. You want to live in a way that brings glory and praise to God. So, so how should that work? What should we do in light of that? Well, that there surely propels us out into the world to act for the benefit of other people. Why? So that as we show them Christian love, maybe they'll be pointed to Christ Jesus. Maybe God will use that to convert them, to change them. And then what happens? Yes, he receives honor. He receives the glory. He receives the the praise. You see, the love that we have for others is not just connected to, it stems from this love that we must have for God. But the second element here, I'll tell you, I find much more challenging. And it's the fact that this second statement, love your neighbor, it has been thoroughly overlooked by the church. Would you not agree with that? See, we've all uh, seen the charity workers that work on the street, haven't we? You know the guys with their jackets and their badges and their clipboards and they're stopping people and they're asking them questions. We've all been harassed uh, by these people on Oxford Street. Well, let's say you and I as a church, we did that one afternoon. We went out in Oxford Street and we stopped people and we asked them this question. We stopped them and said, what is it you think Christianity is all about? What do you think the gospel of what do you think the church is all about what answers do you think we would get i think a lot of people would say ah singing hymns christianity it's about church and it's about singing hymns maybe people would say christianity maybe they mention that first element oh it's about loving god now here's my question for you do you really think they would mention the second element here think if we stop people on oxford street They would say, Christians? Oh yeah, Christians are the people who love everyone. Would they say that? Would they say, Christians, they are the people who show unconditional, sacrificial love to everyone in their lives. Would people say that? I tell you this, I, I doubt it. And yet you consider for a moment what it is that we're dealing with this morning. The Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, is summarizing the law of God. And what does he say? What does God want? What is front and center? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Is this not the most challenging thing for us individually? Isn't it? To love our neighbor, pleasing God. Isn't it such a challenge for London City Presbyterian Church? But maybe just now you're looking at me thinking, mate, you're making too much of this. You know, Christianity is about religious practice. It's about religious activity. This is an isolated incident from Jesus. not about loving your neighbor. You listen closely to what I'm about to say then. This truth, loving your neighbor, is plastered all over the New Testament. 
I mean, this is a fundamental, critical element to the early church. Paul, he's writing Romans, and even there in Romans, he quotes Jesus, love your neighbor. James, the brother of our Lord, and his epistle, what does he say? He does the same thing, he quotes this. What is Galatians 5.14, people? What is it? Paul, what does he say? The whole of the law is fulfilled in one word. And then what does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, isn't it challenging? Like, do you see what, what, what it is here? A genuine, active love for the people in our life. It's a sign that our hearts have been changed. It is actually evidence, the most basic evidence, that we really have a heart that is in love with our covenant God. So we are to love, what is it? God desires our love for him. God desires our love for others. And the third and the last thing here is that God desires our love over and above ritual. Over and above ritual. Because you see where we've got to in this section of scripture, I hope. Uh, the scribe comes up to Jesus. He asks him the question, greatest commandment. Jesus responds, says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. But surely you and I have to notice how the scribe <laughs> reacts to what Jesus says. I love how the scribe reacts because basically I picture him there jumping up and down and shouting, yes, because he loves this answer. I mean, the scribe is delighted with what Jesus says. He is in full agreement. Here's the thing, though. In his agreement, you and I have to notice the shocking thing the scribe says. Have a look at it. Look at the end of verse 33. He says something utterly shocking here. So he agrees with Jesus, loving God, loving your neighbor. Then he says this, that these things are, do you see, more important than what? Burnt offerings and sacrifices. More important than the sacrificial system. Now, what did I say a second ago? I said that this was, I said it's shocking. Do you see why it's shocking? Where are they? They're standing in the temple courts. What time of year is it? It's Passover time. Like, do you see the picture? Like at this point here, they've got thousands of people round about them. And there's people preparing for sacrifices, making sacrifices, people buying animals for the Passover to make sacrifices. And what's this guy's job again? He's a scribe. He's an expert in the sacrificial system. And what is he saying? He's saying, see all this stuff, all of it. There's something even more important than all. You're with me now, aren't you? This is shocking. Do you see that this would have appalled so many people listening on? So the question we're asking is, is he wrong? Like, is he wrong? Is he just making a mistake here? Well, no. What we might not pick up on on first reading is that what this scribe says is utterly saturated in Old Testament language. 
Like this scribe there and saying this truth. You've got hints of 1 Samuel 15. You've got hints of Hosea chapter 6 where God says himself, I desire steadfast love more than sacrifice. Do you see the point here? What this scribe says, that God desires love much more than ritual. It's a biblical remark. So yes, we can think about the people of Oxford Street, but you know what concerns me more? What we think Christianity is about. So I'm asking you this morning, Christian and non-Christian alike, what do you think this faith is? Why do you think we're here? What, what is it that pleases God? Do you, do you think it is how we act on a Sunday? Is that it? Do you think, oh, it's about getting into a good reading plan of, of the Bible? Do you think it's about how we, we worship the, the manner of our work? Do you think that's what Christianity is? All those things are good. But they are dead. They are utterly meaningless unless they come from a heart that has been changed by Almighty God. Or as one Puritan puts it, listen to this, he said, friends, even the most sacred duties, they have no meaning at all unless they are expressions of our love for God. Do you see, love for him trumps ritual every time. And we end with this. What I think is the most remarkable element of all. Now you think about this with me. This man who has approached Jesus believes everything that Jesus says. Doesn't he? He agrees with everything that Jesus says. And yet, what was it that we noticed at the end here? He's not saved. Isn't that remarkable? Like, here is a man who believes that the most important thing above everything in life is to love God. He believes that. He believes you've got to love God comprehensively. He believes you've got to love God as you love your neighbor. He believes it all. And yet, though he's close, though he is near, what does Jesus say? You're not in the kingdom of God And so you see what we are asking. How does he do it? What does this man have to do? In fact, are we asking, how do I enter the kingdom of God? Well, friends, there is a hard truth that you and I are faced with in Mark chapter 12, isn't there? You look at this section, what do you see? What do you must admit to yourself? We cannot do what the law of God demands. I read that section of scripture that, this week and I was broken. I am far too self-centered a man to love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my strength and my mind. I cannot do that. And I am far, far too selfish a man to love my neighbor as myself. I cannot do this. Do you see it? This man, he cannot do it. What does he need? What do you need to enter the kingdom of God? Do you see? 
We must be identified with one who can. We must be identified with someone who can love God and his neighbor as himself. Do you see what you need? You need the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so friends, I I, I close, I end by appealing to you not to remain on the cusp of salvation if that is you today. Will you not, even this morning, even in here just now, will you not come to Christ Jesus on bended knee? Will you not come and stand behind his righteousness? By faith be identified with his righteousness before God. Because do you know what happens if you do that? You are given a new heart. (laughs) And it is a heart not of stone. It is a heart of flesh. It is a heart that is utterly changed. And it is a heart that will enable you for the first time in your life, by God's grace, to love and to love the Lord your God. Friends, let's pray.